Hello everyone and welcome to this archive from April 25th, 2013, featuring Alan Huffman, the author of Here I Am. Alan penned this extraordinary biography about the life and tragic passing of Tim Hetherington, who co-directed the Oscar-nominated film Restrepo with Sebastian Younger and who was considered an extraordinary humanitarian via the channels of his image-making. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation that we had with Alan, and for more information about the book, Here I Am, go to Facebook and join the Facebook fan page where you can find everything about updates, author events, and things that are happening surrounding the book and its launch. For more information about this series hosted by the Peace Alliance, Go to dopeace.us and click on the restorative justice column and menu. Thank you for listening and we hope we see you in the near future. Good evening everybody and such a warm welcome to you all. This is Molly Rowan Leach and I am your host for the Peace Alliance's Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is an ongoing international series, global telecast as well as dial or Skype in. And we often talk about topics that are related to the justice conversation. Tonight's edition is a very special conversation that we're going to be having, that we're having that's related to media and peace building and the extraordinary life and very tragic death of someone that many of us know about and the author whom I'll introduce in just a moment of his biography. So a very warm welcome to you all tonight. Uh, there's going to be an archive of this conversation posted just as we do with our normal series at Re the Restorative Justice on the Rise website for the Peace Alliance at dopeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. The Peace Alliance is hoping to provide an educational platform through the channel of international media and virtual media to help us connect and gather and be inspired and converse. And so we hope that you'll enjoy tonight's conversation and join us in the future as a participant on this ongoing series. I have one quick announcement before we get into introductions, and that is that the Peace Alliance is going to be producing the Restorative Justice on the Rise series this summer as part of the Summer of Peace, which is an international program partnering with the SHIFT Network and other related organizations doing peace-building work and beyond. So that's an exciting new development, and we hope to see you this summer between July 4th and September 19th. Every Thursday at 9, 9 a.m. Pacific, we'll continue with our series here every Thursday at 5 p.m. until then. So without further ado, it's really just a deep and extraordinary honor to invite into the conversation with us tonight Alan Huffman, who is, not only is he a writer, um, he has an extraordinary background, um, it, I'll just say, 
The books that he's written include a book called Sultana, Mississippi in Africa. He's also written for the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Smithsonian, the Daily Beast, and many other publications. The book that we'll be discussing tonight that he's written is called Here I Am, and in its uh, extremely moving biography of the life of Tim Hetherington. Tim Hetherington, of course, as many of you know, and of course Alan will be sharing with us much more, was an image maker who, in his own words, was not so much interested in photography per se, but in how it could bring people together. And so tonight, Alan and I, and all of you as participants, have the opportunity to look into Tim Hetherington's life, um, the, this extraordinary book called Here I Am, and ask some important questions about what this life represented. So, Alan, I just want to start out tonight with, um, if, if you could just tell us a little bit about your path as a writer and what compelled you to, to come into writing this biography. Well, you know, I, there's no real specific path that I've been on as a writer. It's, it's sort of been whatever uh, interested me at that moment that seemed to warrant a, a book-length narrative. And in Tim's case, there's sort of two books that come into play. In, in 2001, I was uh, writing a, the book Mississippi in Africa, and, and it was about about a place in Liberia called Mississippi in Africa. Liberia was settled by freed American slaves uh, in the 1830s and 40s. And uh, I'm originally from Mississippi, and I was curious about this group that had immigrated there during that time. And so I was going to Liberia to, to find out what happened to them, to finish the story, essentially. And Liberia was in the middle of civil war, off and on for 15 years. And after the book came out, uh, Tim was a mutual friend of Sebastian Younger's, and Sebastian introduced us and said, you need to know each other because you both have Liberia in common. And what I learned was that Tim had, as a, as a photographer, had gone in during the Civil War and whereas I had done everything I could to avoid the fighting because that wasn't the purpose of my, my travels there. Tim had been basically embedded with a group of rebels and had been right in the thick of everything and working on a documentary film uh, called An Uncivil War with James Brabazon, a, a filmmaker. And and then he went back to Liberia after the war ended and lived in the capital, Monrovia, for three years and uh, produced a book about it and continued to, to work in, in Africa as a photographer. And so, as soon as he told me this, you know, I was I was in Liberia for two weeks. It was the longest that the the government would allow me to be there. They were very wary of what my purposes were. And and so when Tim laid out what he had done there, you know, I I, I was totally deferential to him. You know, I mean, he obviously had far greater knowledge of Liberia than than I had, even though I had been researching a book for several years. His firsthand experience was 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 much longer and more intense. But what struck me was that Tim was it was like Tim was interviewing me. It was whatever it was that I had learned, he wanted to know. And journalists, as a rule, can be a pretty hard bitten bunch, and they're not easy to impress. And so I was really 
struck by the fact that uh, of Tim's curiosity and his genuine interest. And after that, uh, you know, every time we were together, our conversations tended to revolve around Liberia, and uh, because that's what we had in common. But I became more and more impressed with his work. And when he was killed in in Libya on April 20th, 2011, and Sebastian set out to do a documentary film about his life, it just seemed that there was a need for to tell the uh, the story in a way that you can only do in a, in a book-length narrative, and that it just sort of felt to me because I, I knew Tim and I admired Tim, but I was also not so close that I could see him as a character in his own story, and so that's that's how the book came about. Mm. And and you mentioned Sebastian Younger. And, of course, um, many of you may know that Sebastian Younger's film that you just referred to, Alan, Which Way is the Front Line from Here, is now running on HBO and has had premieres uh, in quite a a few major cities worldwide and is the companion of sorts um, to Here I Am, which, uh, of course, is available on all your major book outlets and has had some really great reviews from distinguished uh, reviewers. Could you speak a little bit more about this companionship, Alan, and what Sebastian had to say about that, too? Yes. Uh, you know, as I said, it, it, it just was logical that, and you know, there, there are certain things that you can do very compellingly in video, but there are, as any, with any genre, there, there are limitations. And so, for example, you know, Tim's, I think his the thing that drove Tim was to 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 delve deeply into the lives of people who were affected by war, and whether they were soldiers or rebels or or civilians caught in the crossfire, he was much more interested in the effect of war on the individuals than he was on conventional combat photography or that sort of thing. So even though he produced some really stunning video from, from combat situations, there, there, these, these sort of portraits that he did were, were just as important to him. So in a book, you, what I, the way I sort of took that as, my, as an opportunity to delve into the stories that Tim was delving into, and in, it gave me an opportunity to, to, to write about the lives of you know, a female rebel in Liberia or a, a U.S. soldier in Afghanistan or an ambulance driver in Libya. Because what really was of interest to me was, was one, sort of recreating this amazing life that Tim lived, but also documenting the amazing lives that intersected with his. And I think that's what Tim was 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 focusing on, and I felt that the book should be a continuation of that. And also knowing what I knew about Tim, the idea of someone just doing a tribute to him would be would make him uncomfortable. Uh, he mm-hmm. never tried to put himself out in front of the story. So mm-hmm. even though his picture is on the cover and you know his, his name is in the subtitle, there are a lot of stories in, in the book that are about people who whose lives intersected with his and but when I saw the film and uh, I told Sebastian that I was a, I was a little bit envious because 
he was able to, you know, when you see Tim's photography and, and his video on the, on a big screen and you see Tim projected onto the big screen, uh, it, 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 it's very vivid. And, and you know, it, I, I just wish that there was a way for for me to do the same in the book. And, and so I was a little envious, I told him. And, and Sebastian said, well, he had kind of the same feeling when he read the book, but you know they were they had to cut out a lot of scenes that were really you know important that took place in Misrata where Kim was killed about other people's lives because they seemed tangential and when you've only got 90 minutes you have to be kind of brutal and he said you know the book enabled me to to go deeper into the story so in that sense i think we both felt that they were complementary and as a result they the decision was made that they would be released more or less simultaneously, so that uh, you know you could get the the full weight of Tim uh, in, from every angle, essentially uh, at once. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly know that I couldn't put it down, and I was extraordinarily moved and taken in by the story. Um, you really bring the reader in, um, just almost as if uh, in a similar sense even though I personally didn't know Tim and I can only observe what you've pointed to and that's um, perhaps a removal uh, of uh, the lens um, or the, the you know the common perception that there's the subject and object or the image and the image maker but but the actually the what he seemed to pull off was the connection um, and you know the equality and the humanity as you're saying, of of all the the people that he came across and the cause and effects uh, within the, the particular situations in so many different countries in the world that that he visited and like you were saying, didn't he didn't pack up after the story broke, but stayed and and was a humanitarian. So um, I'd like I'd like to hear your thoughts on on that the the humanitarian that Tim Hetherington was. Well, one of the things that that, that concerns, well, I, I concerned him in, in in one way, but not in the way it concerned everyone else, was the the objectivity of a journalist. You know, as if you're trained as a journalist, that's that's sort of the the, the cardinal rule that you have to remain objective. And Tim made no pretense of being objective. He he felt like you know people were dying, and that that the world needed to know the cost. Of war, and uh, on, and the best way you could reveal that was through the lives of individuals. So, and as Sebastian pointed out, it's impossible to be objective about someone that's shooting at you, anyway. And you know, if you're embedded with the rebels or you're embedded with the government troops, somebody's going to be shooting in your direction. So, I think the idea of objectivity was was immaterial, really, to Tim. The only thing that mattered was that it was true. And uh, and and so if he was reporting on civilians or government forces or rebels, what he wanted most was to know what was the truth of war from their perspective and in their lives. And so objectivity kind of goes out the window in that sense. And he was very much a humanitarian. He, a lot of his work was for NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations like Human Rights Watch. You know, he made a film about the genocide in Darfur and basically was, you know, largely responsible for 
bringing the, the world's attention to what was happening there. And, and he had an agenda. It was to bring the world's attention to the genocide. It wasn't just to go in there and grab some dramatic photographs or footage and then move on to the next battleground. He was very focused on trying to have an effect on what was happening in Darfur. But on the other hand, when he was in, in Afghanistan, the, the idea of the, the political basis for the war was, was not part of the mix. He really was only interested in understanding what war was like for a conventional soldier. It was a different realm for him, and, and part of his long-term review of, of an exploration of you know, the impact of war on everyone. So, but he didn't really, he wasn't really interested in the politics. He was interested in just showing the realities and the impacts of war. And in that sense, he was a true humanitarian. He was also an artist. And and so all of those things came into play and, and are evident in his work and, and in the choices that he made. Mm. One of the things that I remember um, hearing, I believe it was in the film, was he, he said he wasn't led by moral outrage to, you know, he felt very strongly that how important it was to go in and, like you're saying, not just capture images, but to, to really, really connect with, with what was at hand and, and, of course, with the people and their situations. And um, time and again, including Sebastian Younger saying this in, in your book, um, it's just very apparent that, that he had some, he had a real knack to, to connect with people instantly. And uh, that seemed to inform his ability to do something really brilliantly and, and also um, to not need to bring analysis into it. Can you speak, can you speak a little bit about um, what made him so ahead of his time in that way? Because, you know, it seems like a lot of times people in the field, they, you know, first of all, they, they don't necessarily want to get to know their subjects. They see them as subjects, but rather right. Tim seemed to see them as his equals. And not only that, he simply brought the images forward without coloring them with his own opinion or analysis. Well, I think it is, it's absolutely true that everyone was valid in, in Tim's eyes. And, and so that's a good starting point for, for winning someone's confidence and, uh, and to allow you into their lives, especially when they're in a vulnerable situation, as people often are in war. Tim was a very disarming person because it was immediately evident that he was genuine and that he was, you know, anyone who was willing to spend the time that he did with his photographic subjects you know, you win their trust because you aren't the person that's just coming in and grabbing a snapshot and and moving on and just exploiting their situation. I mean, you know, Tim was going to hang back with the, with the person and and get and you know get to know their children if 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 he had the time to do it and he and if he if he was able he would take the time to do it to find out everything. He was curious more than anything. He also was was charming and that helped, you know, that disarms people to some degree. And I don't mean that in a you know, charm can be uh can be a rather lethal trait, you know, it, it can fool people with not but in Tim's case it was it was based on his genuine interest and 
and people felt that, and so they they let him in. So I think that that was the main thing that that, that set him apart. That he, you know, for example, if you saw in the film that when he was in Sri Lanka and he was photographing the children and some of the children were sort of nervous. They had been through the tsunami and their lives had been just turned upside down. And, you know, he, he sat down in their little chair and allowed them to photograph him until they, they were comfortable with, with him, you know, and, and, and he got to know them uh, that way. And I think that's the way he approached everyone. He empathized. He tried to imagine what it was like to be in their shoes. And so you're a, a young child whose who's family died in the tsunami and you're, you know, and there's a stranger who speaks a foreign language who, who is, you know, he's tall, he's, he's of a different race. You, you know, his job at that moment was to make them feel comfortable with him and not, not to threaten them in any way. And to do that, he had to empathize, and that was something that just came naturally to Tim. He he did empathize with anyone in any situation unless they were inflicting pain on others. And in that case, what he mostly wanted was to understand why. And so that's actually how he ended up in Liberia. Initially, he was covering a, a, a Liberian soccer team, in London that was was playing and they were all war victims more or less they had been injured lost limbs and they had formed this this soccer team and and Tim was covering them in London and they told him they wanted someone to to do a, a film about them in Liberia so he went he traveled to Liberia to 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 cover this team called the the Millennium Stars and once there that's kind of what what lured him into war because even though he didn't see any combat on that first trip, he saw the evidence of it and he realized that he was just sort of dancing around the perimeter and that if he wanted to tell the story fully, he had to understand the the, the war that, that, that was underneath this the, the, the soccer story. And so he went back to Liberia with James Brabazon to, to explore that part of the story and and what he learned was that the if you really want to understand human nature and what makes people do the things they do, you, there's no better place to 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 understand that than in a conflict zone where everything is exaggerated and everyone's uh, behavior is is sort of larger than than life. So that's how that's how it, it began to him. But for him, but it was still always about empathizing with these these people and and trying to understand their stories. Mm. Mhm. I I recall something um that he said in relation to that and this isn't a direct quote but um along the lines that he wanted to help facilitate discussion of difficult topics that people maybe wouldn't normally want to talk about or discuss via unlikely vehicles um, such as sport or image making and and um, in in the film you see uh, an image of uh, a very proper English woman drinking a cup of tea right next to a colorfully decked out um, probably elder or parent or grandparent of one of the the soccer players in the UK as, as you describe you know that was perhaps the impetus that brought Tim initially to Liberia and to 
work with Bravazon and, and to be on the front lines there for the first time with the Lurd Rebels. And um, he even had a price on his head, didn't he, at that point? He did. He did, because uh, what they were doing, because they were the only journalists that were accompanying the rebels, they were basically revealing a side of the war that Charles Taylor, who was the president of Liberia at the time, did not want revealed. Because, you know, Charles Taylor wanted everyone to think that he was winning the war, and they were running counter to that, because they were showing the, the ground that the rebels had gained. And they were, a, you know, a nuisance to him. And so, yeah, he put a price on, on Tim's and James's head, and that's really when they made the decision to, to leave Liberia. It's one thing to be covering combat. It's another to be hunted. And uh, so at that point, they, they withdrew from the field, essentially. So, um, you know, that, that's what happened in Liberia. But when, after he left, he realized he hadn't had enough. And so after Charles Taylor uh, fled the country uh, and he was able to return, Tim moved back to Liberia to, to, to go a little bit deeper into that story. Hmm. And he, he actually ended up living there for quite some time, didn't he? Yeah, for three years. He um, uh, And I think he kind of fell in love with, with West Africa during that time and, um, and, uh, and really carved out a life for himself there and began to explore stories in other parts of Africa from uh, his base of operation there in, in Liberia. So that was mm-hmm. how it all started. Tim and uh, and and everything just you know followed from there. Well, in in the book, you you have um, you know in the, the the beginning, you you start out by sharing that fateful day in Misrata, Libya, and of course the the beginnings of the the Arab Spring, and the um, as Tim said in his last tweet, the um, the you know the sh- the um, how did he put it the the shelling from from Qaddafi's reb- um, Qaddafi's troops was it was just a, a real mess um, very rogue situation very dangerous situation um, happening there in Misrata on I think you described the scenes on Tripoli Street very carefully and I just um, I think one of the primary questions that you probably get quite a bit around this and that people are probably thinking is, and maybe even Tim himself was, is um, why go back when, you know, bullets had almost raised his head. Um, we, you know, he, w- he seemed to be at a point in his life where he was getting ready possibly to settle down. And he, um, you know, in a, in a very heroic way, he was doing these these amazing things to um, give of his life, even possibly for, mm-hmm. and he did, for truth and and for um, us to take a closer look at what's happening in our world, no matter where we are in the world. So, what do you think, Alan? Um, brought him back that day, even though he knew that um, on some level, you know, because he, he was a very smart man, wasn't he? <laughs> Yes, he was. He was brilliant, actually. And and, and you know, uh, you mentioned the scene from the from Sebastian's documentary about the the tea shop, and that actually was from a short film that Tim made called Diary, uh, 
which, you know, I certainly think anyone who is interested in Tim's life in addition to the book and, and Sebastian's film should should watch Diary. I think it's like 18 minutes long and it's on Vimeo and in various places on, online it's available. And it was, as Tim described it, a way to sort of try to find himself after 10 years of of covering war. And I think he, and what it shows is what you experience when you're going back and forth. And that oftentimes going home after you've covered war is just as hard as the the, the terror of conflict. Because the time of war, it's not just adrenaline although that's certainly a component, but it's also just really seeing what people are made of and who you can count on and, and, and really understanding human nature. And everything, you, everyone feels more alive in proximity to death. It's just the nature of war. And so once you experience that and then you go home and, you know, everyone's talking about what color to reupholster the sofa and that sort of thing, it's it's kind of a letdown. I mean, it's inevitable. And so as a as a war journalist, you're straddling those two worlds, you know, and they're, they're equally important because you want to show those people back home what matters through the, the prism of war. And so even though Tim talked about settling down and knowing that if you if you do cover war, long enough, sooner or later, your number is going to come up. It's just inevitable. And particularly for older journalists, they sometimes maybe get a little inured to the danger. It's, it's, they've just been through so much. And so he talked about that, but, but when he got right down to it, how do you give up access to something that is so telling about life for, for better or worse? And, and so when he went to Misrata, you know, the the morning of the day that he was killed, they were involved in a firefight inside of a, a furniture store where they were using long-range automatic weapons and grenades in room-to-room fighting between Gaddafi snipers and the rebels. And that war doesn't get any more dangerous than it was for them that morning. And they lived to tell the tale. Then they went back to Tripoli Street that afternoon because by that point, Tim had sort of found his focus on the, the rebel commander, a man named Salah Hadim. And, and this was sort of the, the personification of the story that Tim was always looking for. And so Salah Hadim took the photographers back to Tripoli Street that afternoon. And, and then basically it, nothing much happened. Uh, it was pretty quiet. Uh, there were a few mortars coming in nearby, but everyone that was was just basically hanging out on Tripoli Street. But it made some of the photographers and some of the rebels nervous because whenever it's that quiet, it's like the calm before the storm. And another photographer who was there, Andre Leon, who had been there in Nisrata longer than the rest of them, warned them that they were going to start shelling that area later in the afternoon in retaliation for the fight in the morning. And Andre, in fact, left, and the rest of them stayed. And whether or not that was a, a, a bad decision, you know, it, 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 if they had not, if the mortar that had not come in when it did, 
it wouldn't have been a bad decision. But considering that this one mortar came in and killed Tim and Chris Andros, who was standing nearby and gravely injured another photographer, Guy Martin, who was with them, and injured another photographer, Michael Brown, and killed numerous rebels and severely injured many of them. But it was just this one, you know, shot sort of out of the blue. So, I mean, I don't know how much you can glean from the the decision that they made to stay that day, uh, aside from the fact that Andre Leon told them that they, that he expected the, the danger was going to ramp up later that afternoon. But once you're accustomed to going back and forth between safe places and dangerous places, uh, they're, they're, all bets are off, you know, and I think mm-hmm. it, that you, you can say that, that he had a desire to, to withdraw from, from that world at some point, but it's, it's not so easy to pull, pull out of mm-hmm. it. Sebastian did after Tim died. That was like, that was all the, the sign that he needed, that it was time to, to withdraw from, from that field. And he is no longer doing uh, war journalism. But, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, and then Sebastian has also set up a foundation called Risk. R-I-S-C for Reporters Instructed in Saving Colleagues, which it basically teaches battlefield triage to journalists because the truth is that uh, Tim's wound, although it, it severed his femoral artery, he could have been uh, conceivably kept alive long enough to, to get into the hospital and then a doctor could have found him back up. He, he might, it, it doesn't appear that he would, if someone had known how to... to apply the proper compression to such an injury he might have lived. So, you know, that's one good thing that came of it. There are now a lot of journalists who are being trained because they're constantly being thrust into these situations and few of them had any knowledge of, of life-saving techniques. So, mm-hmm. but as to whether or not Tim was, was going to, you know, remove himself from, from danger, it's a subject of debate. There, You can hear mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, arguing both sides. Who knows? It's a moot point now. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd just like to pause for a moment. And uh, if you're just joining us tonight, we're, we're talking with Alan Huffman. He's the author of Here I Am, the story of Tim Hetherington, image maker, war photographer, and also the co-director of the Oscar-nominated Restrepo Tim Hetherington lost his life, as Alan was describing, in Misrata, Libya, in April of 2011, only six weeks after being on the red carpet for Restrepo. The companion film that we've been discussing tonight by Sebastian Younger to this wonderful biographical sketch that Alan has done is called Which Way is the Front Line from Here?, and I'd like to just point out that you can find out more information about the book. You can go to the Facebook page, because I know a lot of you have been asking where to find Alan for his next reading, where to find more about the film and its screenings. Certainly um, it's ongoing on HBO right now. Um, there's also local screenings in select cities. And um, the book itself is featured on a Facebook page, um, facebook.com backslash the book here I am that's all one word the book here I am 
And more information, too, about Alan at his website, which is alanhuffman.com. He also has an active blog that he writes, among many of the other writings that he does. Um, One other uh, important note to mention, too, about the risk training that Sebastian Younger has created. Um, That website is risctraining.org. That's risktraining.org. And also uh, another note would be that um, at the New York premiere of the film, Tim's mother, Judith Hetherington, announced that she's going to be doing um, some of her own photography work and um, exhibit alongside some of Tim's work. And I, I was extraordinarily moved by that. You know, you, you and I, Alan, got to share that evening uh, in, in New York at the HBO studios. And um, it was extraordinarily moving to share that with, with Tim's parents and his beloved Idil and many friends and filmmakers from all around um, do you want to say any more about ongoing projects or, or anything else before we continue with our conversation? No, I think that about covers it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, and one other thing, too, that's important is there is a foundation that has been formed in Tim's honor, um, honoring the, the similar work of people doing work in human rights and related fields worldwide. Um, and that's a, a good place to, to find out more. Um, I believe that's at timheatherington.org. That's right. And I would like to say one thing is that, you know, Tim was uh, among the people who were affected by that incident in Misrata that day, uh, was probably the best known, uh, maybe because of Restrepo and the uh, Oscar nomination. But I would encourage anyone who is interested in in this story to also uh, explore the the, the work of Chris Hondros because I don't want I would hate for it, it to appear that, that Tim was somehow more important than Chris you know it, it just happens that Sebastian and I both knew Tim and that was our focus and but and 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 I hope that someone will will similarly focus on Chris Hondros because he mm. was an amazing photographer and and, uh, and and a very very interesting person in his own right and uh, I wouldn't want it to him to be pushed into the background by all the publicity over over Tim. Mm-hmm. Well said, and also of course the the rebels that were. Um, you know, we're, we're with them. I think I believe. Did you say that there were seven rebels killed along with Tim and Chris in that? Yeah, path? yeah. That was you know it was an interesting thing after the story broke. Uh, you know, for for a moment, the the deaths of of Tim and Chris sort of superseded the the news of the war itself, and because that's the Western you know view. I mean, they they meant more to a Western audience, but. It, 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 when you in the initial accounts, it, it tip, they typically did not even name Guy and Mike Brown because they lived, and didn't mention that all, that this, this group of rebels had also died. And I, I mean, I suppose that's understandable, but in the context of the book, it seemed important to me to also explore the lives of those people, and not because I think that's what Tim would have done. That's what Tim was mm-hmm. doing. And uh, so, yeah, it's very. It, I think it's very important. And so, I interviewed, you know, one of the rebels who was 
was seriously injured in the, the same attack, and uh, and I interviewed the guy who drove the pickup truck that carried uh, Tim to the hospital, and and I feel like their stories are are equally important. Hmm. Yes, very much so. And um, I'd, I'd like to take a moment, Alan, to go back to Diary, um, that short film of Tim's, and just ask you the question about um, the multiple realities. What did that mean to Tim? And was he trying to was he trying to bridge realities for people through his work? And was was that part of his humanitarianism? Um, and do you think also that the media and the the media that he chose in this case being image making has uh, a great power in in furthering peace building work in our world? Well, I'll answer the first one first, and you may have to remind me about the second one because I was thinking about the first one when you were going into the yeah, second. Yeah, I, I tend to do that. Thank you. <laughs> That's fine. Just uh, prompt me again, but um, I do think he was trying to bridge those those two realities and not only for his audience but for himself. I mean I do think he was trying to 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 reconcile his own feelings about these these opposing worlds. And so what you see in diary are are both contrasts and overlapping patterns, I guess I would say. You know, where uh things you know, there's at one point where there's uh they're in a a, a yellow car in 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 a war zone, and then it segues to taxis in Times Square, and and may, then there's the smoke of a soldier's cigarette turns into the, the the clouds over a pastoral landscape, and that sort of thing. And he 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 saw these sort of uh, repetitions that that meant that these worlds were there were bridges between these two worlds, but at the same time, he knew that. The people who lived in, in the, you know, the comparatively cushy world of London or or New York were very privileged, and so he wanted to illustrate the, the contrast. You know, and but but by, by, by showing both the contrast and the overlapping patterns, I think his goal was to to make a connection, so that it wasn't just some nameless, you know, person in in a distant war. It was someone like you. Who, who, and it could be you, you know, if you if you were born in a different place or circumstances changed in your own country. And so, I think he was trying to to show that that to make a connection between those two worlds, but also between those two sides of his own life. And mm. that's what that's what Diary was about was was trying to reconcile those two things. And and I think it's probably the most powerful. A piece of work that that he did, and it mixes still photography and narration and and video, because Tim was very big on on mixing media, and uh, and and I think he understood that that sort of amplified the power of what he was trying to do. So again, I would encourage anyone who is interested in any of this to go and and watch that film because it's a it's a powerful piece of work, and and in a way, as one of his friends. And the book, it was kind of a manifesto for his future work, and which is now, you know, over. I mean, we don't have, we don't know exactly where Tim was going to go, and that's one of the tragedies of his death is that that he was only beginning 
to, to, to create this body of work even after 10 years it seems he was he was beginning to hit his stride and and it was more subjective than we normally associate with journalism because he was clearly taking an impressionistic view of war and and the reality back home in in diary and i think that we would have seen more of that kind of work from him had, had he lived now what was the second question let, let's get to that in a moment. I'll come right back okay. to that, Alan. But I'd like to, to go ahead and take a question from the webcast and then also invite for the last quarter of our, our time together tonight, if you do have a question and you're with us live on the, the telecouncil or Skype in section of the call, you can also ask a live question if you're interested in doing that. Please press 1 on your telephone keypad and we'll get to you as we can. Um, but Shankari asks, and we've been covering a lot of this, but I just want to, she, she asks it succinctly, so I'd like to, to, to just pose this. Um, what main insight do you feel that we as people can glean from Tim's life to help us connect more with our own humanity and ultimately with that of our neighbor, whether near or far? Well, I think it's just a matter of, of, of empathy. You know, I mean, that was what really characterized him, was was caring about who these people are and what what was the effect of war on on their lives. And I think no one really was as dedicated to to revealing that than than Tim. So I think you know, just recognizing that that these are all people with the same hopes and dreams and fears and loves that we have that just happen to find themselves in very, very difficult circumstances. And, you know, and, and the other thing I think that I, I would hope people would take away from this is, you know, we're barraged with information about all sorts of things now. And, and you know, maybe somebody posts a, a photograph of a, a, or a, a, a snippet of video from Syria and you know, you, and there it, it scrolls past on your timeline, and you can like it or share it or whatever. And I think what Tim showed was that, that the importance of 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 developing a, a real commitment to these things, and not just you know feeling that moral outrage and then moving on or whatever, but really really caring enough to invest. In this, and 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 I think that is that is the thing that set Tim apart, and that we can, you know, we can admire and emulate. Mm. Thank you, Shankari, for that question. And um, on that note, Alan, what what would you and and or Tim say to for for those of us who maybe aren't able to go, or maybe even willing to go to the front lines? What actions can we take? Uh, is it a, a matter of raising our consciousness and awareness and being willing to understand that, you know, we're extraordinarily privileged, for example, here in the United States, and we don't see the kinds of things ever uh, and probably can't even wildly imagine them, most of us, what, what he saw and what people see in many countries around the world. Um, so what is required of us um, you know, even if we can't go and do exactly the kinds of things that Tim was attempting to do in his work. Well, obviously caring is a is a prerequisite. And then caring enough to to, to 
find out what action it can be taken, and it varies. You know, it depends. Like in, uh, I think not understanding what's happening is the is the first step because then you can apply pressure to your own political leaders. For example, when the in, in during the Liberian Civil War, when the Liberians were begging the U.S. to intervene, both sides were were asking the U.S. to intervene. Most Americans had no idea that Liberia was founded by freed slaves from the United States. It's just, you know, to them it was just another country in Africa that was involved in turmoil. So I think caring enough to really find out what's going on is the is the first step. And then, and then you and then the 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 avenues available to you to take action become evident. You know, uh, you realize that you can apply pressure to your own congressional representative, you know, to, to or or write letters to the editor to, to, to change public perception about whether or not we should intervene in, in in such a war. In the case of Darfur, you know, where you had Human Rights Watch, which is a nonprofit and is trying to was trying to stop the genocide and they were doing that by sending people like Tim in to make videos. Well, you know, you can contribute to them. Those are those are organizations mm-hmm. that are actually having an impact, but and and so I mean I think the 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 avenues that are available to you come with knowledge and understanding of what's going on, and so I think the most important thing is to be informed and and to recognize when your sources are reliable. You know, it's really mm-hmm. easy to be led down the wrong path, and uh, but you know, and and it's also common for people in the West to lose interest over time. And, you know, it's like Libya is old news now. There's still things going on. There's still needs in those countries. And and I think just to be more informed is, is the most important uh, step that anyone can take. And then when there becomes an opportunity to do something, then you're in a position to take it and to encourage others to do the same. Mm. I'd like to take a live question or comment from the web uh, from our council tonight. Um, Mike, you're live. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, sort of a thought. Uh, I guess it, uh, you, you summed up some of it in this last statement you made, but about basics. I was thinking about Tim dying because of lack of uh, basic medical training, and I thought, holy mackerel, I mean, we were, I was a young soldier, we were taught that first day as basic, mm-hmm. and yet, you'd think somebody going into a combat zone like that, that would just be basic information, and then I realized, as I'm listening to you talk about people don't even know the history of Liberia or anything like that, for those of us that are involved in this program, especially for myself, I'm an old man, um, i got to remember that I have to go back and teach the basics sometimes, and I need to hear the basics sometimes. So um, and sometimes these programs I go, dude, we've heard this before, and then I have to remember, wait a minute, we're touching different audiences sometimes. So the basics have to be reestablished and are real critical, whether it was medical training or you know, the history of what's really going on. I'm complete. Thank you for this uh, program. 
Well, thank you, and and you're absolutely right. You know, you you it's easy to forget the thing, the most important things, because you take them for granted sometimes. And but in 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 this era, when you have particularly with journalists who are going out there, many of them are just showing up in war zones. They've just got a plane ticket and, a, and an iPhone, and they really don't have any any training uh, in in how to handle combat or how to 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 do battlefield, you know medicine even on a rudimentary level so but but even someone who as you said who has been trained in the past you know sometimes takes things for granted thank you mike for that question and i'll open up the lines again um, james welcome you're live thank you um <clears throat> i was interested in alan's reference to adrenaline you know i was in beirut in 82 and 83 during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon and then the subsequent invasion of Beirut and experienced that adrenaline high myself and then after the war noticed how many people were depressed and taking tranquilizers. Even the local grocery store boy, when I went in, he said, you know, I said, <clears throat> why are you so depressed? He said, well, during the war I took NBC to Arafat's bunker, and clearly, you know, it was part of that very dangerous mix of adrenaline and meaning that somehow this excitement mm -hmm. led him into that. And then on the morning of the Israeli invasion of West Beirut, I looked out the window at the tanks, you know, rolling up past uh, the American University. And there was the grocery store boy, maybe 16-year-old, with an RPG on his back, going on a little parallel road that would eventually meet up with the full Israeli army. A completely hopeless gesture. But I, I just wonder if you have any more reflections on that complex equation between adrenaline and then the connection between people's sense of meaning and purpose in life. Well, first of all, that's an amazing story. Thank you for for sharing that. That's that's really interesting, and 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 probably says as much about what we're talking about as as anything that I could say. But I do think that the combination of just body chemistry and sense of meaning is is profound. And 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 you're right. You know, uh, it, it's easy to feel depressed when it's taken away from you because you know it, there's nothing that makes you feel more alive you know i mean your your life is is you're feeling this flood of 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 chemistry in your body and you're also you know you've got these strong uh convictions about what's happening and you know that what you're doing matters and and i think you you see that when i was in Libya last summer you know i saw the aftermath of, of, of you know the especially among uh, young men who had you know for a moment their neighborhoods were war zones and and you know although it's scary and it's sad to to have your friends killed and all that there is something that is life affirming about it and exhilarating and and uh, they you could see it a lot of them felt a little bit lost uh, without it and they're you know they're still firing weapons into the air and uh you know trying to i guess rekindle that sense of excitement i think it's a, a misconception to 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 write it off purely as adrenaline and 
And I think it's really easy and a, a bit of a cop-out, although there's no question that that comes into play. I do think that but when you see that someone that is willing to die for you and when you realize that you're willing to die for someone else, that's way beyond adrenaline. That's a, that's a kind of, of love and camaraderie that, that most people never experience in their entire life. And I think people who have been through conflicts, as, as, as terrible as the conflicts may have been, I think they miss that in addition to whatever adrenaline buzz that they, they got off of the experience. So, but thank you for that story about the, the grocery boy. That's it. That's a really vivid, vivid tale. Mm. Thank you so much, James. And um, on that note, Alan, we're we're getting close to closing tonight. But the, uh, this touches on a, what seems to be a really important theme that you cover, of course, in the book, and then a primary theme of of much of Tim's work, and that's the relationship that men in particular have with war. And I wondered if, if we might close out tonight, you know, given that this question and, and thought was raised around the, the extraordinary relationship of meaning, um, even in atrocity, even in, in the most horrific of conditions um, that is demonstrated in, in, you know, in war especially and, and in extremes. What what uh, tell us a little bit about the the Sleeping Soldiers series and what Tim you know you mentioned a little bit about him being in Afghanistan at Outpost Restrepo with Sebastian when they put the film together um, the the for, for over a, it was about a year I think they were up there on and off what was Tim most interested in that kind of ties into this conversation about adrenaline about um, deeper meaning and the relationship that especially men have with war. Well, I think, you know, Tim did not want to be defined by that adrenaline buzz, that, uh, and, and, and he didn't really think that that was what defined the soldiers either. And right. so there was this one day that, um, that there was nothing going on at Outpost Restrepo in Afghanistan, and everyone's sleeping, you know. And, and so Sebastian was basically just drifting off or whatever and he noticed Tim was going around photographing all the soldiers while they were sleeping and he said what are you doing you know and we don't have to work now it's there's nothing happening and Tim said you know he was basically tired of photographing combat anyway and that having seen seeing all of these soldiers you know asleep you know and it, it just sort of revealed the, 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 the vulnerability in, in humanity that is you know, underlies war, and that these—they look like boys. You know, he as he said, they, they he saw them the way their mothers probably saw them in there. Uh, and and it was a side of war that most people never never see. And so he wanted to document it, and he went on to to do a uh, a multimedia exhibit called Sleeping Soldiers, where he had three screens, and he interspersed these images of these these really peaceful images of these, these young men asleep with the, the the violence, you know, with violent war footage that, you know, just sort of showed the contrast. And that kind of summed up what, what he experienced there, you know. I mean, on the one hand, you've got these young men that are just recently boys, and 
and they're they're caught up in in something that is as old as time, and and no no one really understands, you know, uh, what what causes it. But there's no question that young men are going to be at the center of it. And you know, as he described, you know, that that they're the software of of war. And so he was interested in in exploring that, finding out what it is, that, what is the attraction. You know why? Why do they allow themselves to be, you know, put into these conflicts, even when they may not have any uh, political motivation at all? You know, but and it's not just excitement, and mm-hmm. it's not just testosterone. And I think what he found was mm-hmm. that it was one of the few places where you actually could uh, share that kind of love that we were talking about earlier. And so that was part of the exploration of war that that he was undertaking that, that eventually led him to. To Nisrata. Mm-hmm. And and a sense of deeper meaning than what might be possibly achieved in so-called normal society. I think Sebastian right. said that 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 kind of that kind of bonding is it's not not accepted and it's simply not reproducible in society, uh, as it were. And um, I, to me, uh, how you lay it out in the book. And just and take us through this this particular theme is is quite powerful, and the um, just again the the importance of of what Tim was getting at without even saying a word, um, the genius of of his being so ahead of his time in even thinking to take pictures of these soldiers sleeping is is truly incredible to me. Yeah, he was an amazing man, and he and and he. He, he crossed paths with a lot of amazing people during the course of his career, and and uh, and he produced an, a great body of work as a result. So, well, and that brilliance that right there—that that ability to see that in in all peoples, that um, connective humanity, and to not be some sort of icon or idol, but to recognize that what you know that he was a part of a, a much greater human story. I really honor the way that you bring that through in this book and and I'm so grateful for you taking the time to talk with us tonight here on this this series. It's been a great well, honor, thank you. Alan. Thank I just want to in closing. Well. Thank you. I uh, in closing tonight, I just want to remind everybody that here I am is available on major outlets including of course amazon.com. Um, I highly recommend this book, as do many. And uh, the Facebook page is facebook.com backslash the book, Here I Am. For more about Alan, you can go to alanhuffman.com. He has a blog there as well as many other um, writings that he has done, more information there about the, the book, Here I Am. And um, for more, again, for more information about risk training, you can go to risktraining.org. And for more about the Tim Heathering Foundation, timheatherington.org. So on behalf of the Peace Alliance and all of you participants dialing in or, or coming in from the webcast worldwide, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Have a good night, all. <laughs>